You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to City Lights Live, the official virtual reading series of City Lights booksellers and publishers. I'm your host, Peter Maravellis, and tonight we are delighted to be celebrating one of our own books. As many of you know, City Lights is a publisher as well as a bookstore. It is always an auspicious occasion when we are able to celebrate the publications of a City Lights title. Tonight, we're celebrating the publication of Women Who Changed the World, Stories from the Fight for Social Justice. It's edited by Lynn Lewis. Award-winning oral historian Lynn Lewis brings together the stories of nine exceptional women from their earliest formative experiences to their current strategies as movement leaders, organizers, and cultural workers. Each chapter is dedicated to a specific activist. The life stories of these inspiring women reveal the many ways the experience of injustice can catalyze resistance and a commitment to making change. Lynn Lewis is an oral historian, educator, and community organizer. She is the author of Love and Collective Resistance, Lessons from the Picture, uh, the Homeless Oral History Project, and is the former executive director and past civil rights organizer at Picture the Homeless. Ms. Lewis is the recipient of numerous honors and awards, including a 2022 and 23 National Endowment for the Humanities Oral History Fellowship. She makes her home in New York City. She's going to be joined tonight by two of the women who are mentioned in the book. We're going to be having with us Malkia Devich Cyril, who is an organizer, activist, movement builder, writer, poet, and educator. Also, Hillary Moore, which is an organizer, educator, and author who works within anti-racist frameworks that links movements to abolish the police and military with environmental justice, racial justice, and anti-imperial struggles in the U.S. and abroad. As is customary, at the outset of each event, I'd like to point out that we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral homelands of the Ramatish peoples. We would like to take this moment to offer our respects to those who have come before us as stewards of the land. So please join us now in offering a warm welcome to Lynn Lewis and friends. Welcome to City Lights and congratulations. Um, I'm really, really happy to be here with you all, even though we're not really here, but this is as close as we can get for tonight. Um, I'm really, really grateful to City Lights um, for believing in the idea of this book and also helping get it out into the world. Um, and to you, Peter, for helping us uh, with this call, with this meeting tonight. Um, I really also want to thank everybody that joined us for being here and being interested in the book. Um, and the histories, you'll hear me say histories, not stories. I'll, I'll tell you why in a little bit. Um, but mainly, I really am grateful to each of the nine women who um, participated. And so an oral, you know, an oral history interview, it's it's the conversation before the uh, the interview. It's thinking about, do I want to do this or not? It's the interview itself. Um, and each of the women, you know, we begin with their, you know, family, their childhood, where they're from. So, you know, that's a lot of emotional labor to share. Um, and it's not just telling a story, it's analyzing, right, the context and conditions of their lives and the choices that they've made. 
Um, and so there's a lot involved in a in a two hour interview, two to three hour interview, and then reviewing the transcripts and making edits, uh, making corrections, taking my emails and calls after uh, for clarification. So there's a lot involved. There's a lot of labor on behalf of each of the nine women that were interviewed, and I'm grateful to each of them. Um, the nine women, I'm going to read their names, um, and they are on the cover of the book. Um, I love the cover also, which was Sidi uh, Zeit's idea. Um, Vanessa Nosi, Roz Pelez, Yomara Velez, Betty Yu, Loretta Ross, Therese Howard, Malkia David Cyril, Priscilla Gonzalez, and Hillary Moore. And uh, the other women that were interviewed may join us uh, throughout the hour. Um, they're in different time zones. And, um, and so that may happen, uh, which is great. And if not, um, we're honored that Hillary's here and Malkia will be joining us. Um, I do want to flag that Roz Pele's mom um, recently passed away. And that's why she's not here with us tonight. Um, her name was Ruby Monroe Woodward, and um, we learn about her. Um, Roz shares the story of her parents, um, and so I just want to lift her up, lift up her name, and make sure that uh, we hold Roz and her family in our hearts. And um, and so, really, the you know when I said earlier that. I'm grateful to City Lights for believing in the idea of this book. Each of the nine women are well known in, in the circles within the, which within which they work, but not necessarily are well known outside of that. And um, you know, we had a lot of conversations at first. I really wanted to, I had three kind of main objectives. Uh, one is I really wanted to kind of counter this prevailing narrative that everything is terrible. <laughs> there's a lot of terribleness going on, but there's also a lot of amazing work um, that these nine women and millions more uh, folks are doing every day, um, you know, to defend rights, um, to make sure that we all live in safety, um, and so I really felt like I was very compelled to to say, well, we need to get these these histories and these stories out there and everyone needs to meet these women. Um, and we need to start talking to each other and lifting up the people that are doing really good work um, because it is happening. And otherwise, we'll, you know, we're subject to drowning and despair. Um, and so I wanted Another kind of objective was there are a lot of folks out there who are perhaps have good intentions, but don't know what to do or don't see themselves as um, agents of change, don't see themselves as social justice leaders. And while the women that were interviewed for this book have all done amazing, made choices that were heroic or heroic um, and have done amazing work. They also are someone's sister or partner or neighbor or friend. And, um, and so not that they're not remarkable, of course they are, but we all can do remarkable things, right? And so I wanted to 
I wanted this book to be for folks who need to see themselves as an agent of change, need to be able to say, you know, I can do that too. Wow, Hillary's doing that or Malkia did that. And maybe I can do something like that. Maybe I can find an organization to work with, or maybe I can do whatever, fill in the blank. Um, that makes sense to them. Um, in these times, I think, you know, every every generation, every time is crucial in its own way. And certainly um, it is now as well. And then the other thing is I wanted to be able to contribute to the documentation of histories of resistance. Um, and the interviews are not just personal stories, as I mentioned, they add nuance to the historic record. Um, and so in, in folks telling of how they got involved with the organization or a particular organizing campaign or an organization or an effort to change something, they, they offer um, tidbits, they offer stories and names of people and names of organizations that, if they're not documented, would disappear, would evaporate. And it's really crucial that we have this information, that we have these histories, because um, the problems that are that the women are flagging that they were facing, white supremacy, housing rights, um, immigration, environmental justice, colonization, all of these issues are not just in, in our past, right? It's not just history. We are dealing with all these same issues still today. And so the, the stories that they share of the organizations that they worked with, that they founded, it's important that we know these things um, and that we can learn from the lessons um, that they have learned, that they share with us. So those were kind of the three objectives, right? The three ideas behind the book. And um, and so, you know, we thought a lot about the title, right? And, you know, Women Who Changed the World. Um, I've uh, heard from some of the other women how that made them feel a little bit like an imposter syndrome. I also had some challenges with it because it's nine women who live in the States. The world is a lot bigger than the United States. Um, and then I really kind of landed in a place where it's the acts that we do on a daily basis that maybe seem small or in insignificant, but really contribute to change in the same way as like a, this sounds like a cliche, but like a drop of water, right, is part of an ocean. And so what we do matters, um, what each of us does matters. And so in that sense, I think that um, the title Women Who Changed the World is very powerful. Um, and I wanted to um, ask um, Hillary, I don't know if Malki is here yet, but I want to ask Hillary, um, one of the women interviewed for the book, Hillary Moore, um, if you would please read a passage from your chapter. Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, um, thank you for having me here tonight. And I can't say it enough. Thank you for Lynn um, for inviting me into this project and taking such good care of our stories and setting it up in a way where I get to see 
people I'm in movement with in new ways. And then I also get to see myself in new ways. So just thanks for including me. And I am coming in tonight um, from Shawnee, Osage, and Cherokee territory, also known as Louisville, Kentucky, French colonially known as Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I wanted to read a page from my chapter. If anybody already has the book, you can join me on page 245. <laughs> um, I want to share a piece about what I shared with Lynn. I also wanna say that it matters who asks us these questions. Um, I have a lot of respect for Lynn, um, the work that she has done. And that's actually how I met her was through Picture the Homeless back in like 2010 or nine. Um, and I think if I had been asked by somebody else or somebody I had less of a relationship with, Maybe I would have done it, but my ability to share what I shared and be so willing and um, kind of like in on the project, I, I just want to say that it matters that it was when. Anyway, so this piece is about writing a book called No Fascist USA, the John Brown Anti-Klan Committee and Lessons for Today's Movements, which City Lights also has available. Uh, they were our publisher. Is James on here yet? My co-author, James up here? Not yet. Still looking for him. <laughs> I'll give him shit later, so that's cool. Um, okay, I'll just jump in. This one is about uh, being able to connect struggles, even through time and different regions and making those connections in ways that you didn't expect. So it says, or I say, <laughs> Um, I was working on a book, No Fascist USA, with James Tracy, uh, Richmond, Richmond, the Richmond Police Department, and a faction of the Richmond Police Department, known as the Cowboys, were a big part of that history. So learning about them was like a punch in the stomach. I think people learn in spirals, and life happens in spirals. You come to things the first time, then other things happen in life. And you then come to similar things, but in a deeper way, perhaps. That's the hope. So in writing John Brown anti about the John Brown Anti-Klan Committee, it totally tra time-traveled me back to Richmond and painted a whole other historical context for the work that we were doing in 2008, 2009, and 2010. We were writing about the 1980s, and I was born in the fucking 80s. <laughs> Working on that book put my life in perspective in a lot of ways. Some of the places that we talk about in the book, so No Fascist USA, are the exact places that we were door knocking campaigns in the when I was 19 and 20 years old. Even if I had the book, had read the book that I would later write, I wasn't in a place to receive the depth and the breadth of all of that context. So in the 80s, the Cowboys was a Klan-like organization within the Richmond Police Department. And they were picking up young black men, especially and driving them out to the suburbs, so like Walnut Creek area, and leaving them there or just committing regular police murders that were always happening. I wouldn't have been able to comprehend or understand when I was 19 years old, how that is related to the fact that there is a global corporation, Chevron, doing whatever the fuck it wants in Richmond and taking up both illegal practices it was doing and the way it was legalizing more horrible practices on this community. 
What is the ideology? What is the common sense? What is the water that we're swimming in where both the Richmond Police Department can do whatever the fuck they want in this place and Chevron can do whatever the fuck they want in this place? What does it mean about black and brown folks in Richmond? What does it mean about indigenous folks who are resisting the tar sands? I was connecting these those resistance points and I have chills right now. I had a whole experience of writing that chapter. I know even more deeply the ways that we're all connected and the ways that our movements need each other and how systemic this shit is. Writing that whole book really deepened my politics and understanding and commitment, particularly for movements fighting for self-determination. That was a trip. Thank you, Hillary. No problem. Each of the um, chapters, right, um, are an interview with one of the women. And I pulled a quote from each of their interviews that I felt like really embodied um, the spirit, or at least uh, some of what they were conveying. And so Hillary's, her chapter, the quote um, that I chose was, this life is short. And if you want to use your life toward creating a world that we all actually need to live in and have dignity and have our needs met, if you want to make that a priority in your life, I think committing yourself to organization and committing yourself to movement are really important compass points or touchstones to keep coming back to. And a lot of the women, actually, I think it's really a, a overarching theme across all of the, the chapters, all of the women's interviews, each of their kind of analysis of their role and their kind of place in the world has to do with making a choice that involves a commitment. And that is a really different way of thinking and living than this is a job, right? So Vanessa Nosi talks about the fact that this is her life, you know, that it, there's not a job description attached to it. Um, and the other thing that um, I think is really very beautiful is that um, each of them found a way to do that. And the process of doing that connecting and seeing how different struggles were connected. So Hillary just mentioned, um, you know, environmental justice work, uh, protesting Chevron and the damage, the harm that Chevron was causing in, in Richmond, but also how that was connected to kind of global environmental harm that uh, Chevron and oil companies were causing. And at the time in the 80s, that wasn't something you know, there were people working on that. There always have been, um, but not to the extent that we are aware collectively today. And then Hillary connecting that work to what policing, right? Policing practices in Richmond and how both of those systems, policing and environmental injustice and corporate power, um, how they're playing out kind of in this uh, one 
place, right? Which is almost like a microcosm of how it plays out everywhere else. And so the capacity of the women interviewed for this book, but that all of us actually have that we can use to analyze the conditions of our lives and make these connections um, is really, really powerful. And the way that that happens as described by the women in the book is through action, right? It's through taking action that they begin to see and learn these things and learn from other people. Um, And Hillary, one of the things that you shared very powerfully was the importance of mentorship uh, from other people in movement um, and particularly some women that you named that um, really were some of your teachers. Um, And that's also a really consistent theme in the book is the power and the importance of being invited, being welcomed into movement. Um, Because when we first begin to get involved, we don't know, (laughs) you know, it's like anything, you don't know everything, right? When you first get started. Um, And even though some of the women were kind of born into movement uh, because of the families that they are born into, um, they still had to learn, right? There's still a trajectory. Um, so whether you're born into it um, or whether you go to your first meeting when you're a teenager or or a senior citizen, it doesn't matter. There's still an arc of learning and um, the importance of welcoming. And so that also provides us with lessons. If we are already in movement, lets us know how important it is for us to be welcoming to someone else. Um, because Hillary, Hillary shared and the other women interviewed shared how that made a difference for them. Um, I don't, I don't mind if there's questions now, um, Peter, I don't know if Peter stood with us, um, but there is a question in the chat, Hillary, for you, if you can see it. Let me see if I can. Uh... Hi, Hillary. Can you hear us? Yes. Yes, I can. Can you read that question or would you like me to read it for you? I'll read it out loud. Um, so everybody, just in case they're not looking at the screen. My question is for Hillary. It originates in interest in family history. Uh, any insight to share regarding how my childhood and family experiences informs my activism? Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> You should read the book because that's like half of the, my chapter. But like the the headlines, I think, would be, um, I mean, I think we're all products of the conditions that we grew up in and we get to make choices based on what we want to continue or what we don't want to continue. And I come from, you know, conservative slash far right Um area of growing up and also my family's super influenced by those conditions and I say in the book that I don't have any clue why I'm very very different I even told my dad (laughs) he knows maybe just a little bit about what I do in the world I told him yesterday on the call or we had a phone call um you know I'm taking up some other pieces of work and I told him I'm like yeah you know getting people access to abortion, that they need medical procedures. And his whole thing to me was like, 
I don't agree with anything that you do, but it's very consistent. So it sounds like that's what you're up to, you know? So all that to say, um, I think my organizing, my activism, how I'm using my life uh, is very much informed by who I come from um, because I come from a worldview and, and my family is very much shaped by a worldview where, um, you know, scarcity runs the show and suspicion of other people is the main way that we relate to others. And uh, it's a it's a hard and fractured life and it's a poor and working class life. And we miss out on a lot of the opportunity to connect with other people who are in very similar situations to us. Um, so that's like my immediate family. And then just one piece about family history. I'm also a super nerd about family history like how did we become white and what were the choices processes global imperial dynamics that led to us being here and having this moment we did not just appear so i've actually spent a bunch of time figuring out why we left austria in 1900 and what happened to us to get here and i think that actually has a ton of reasons as to why my family is even far right and then how i even became a fucking hardcore leftist so I think all of that matters and all of it gives me meaning and motivation. Um, there's probably a ton more to say, but I will say that um, who and where I come from is a huge part about why I do what I do. And I think I learned that the most to Lynn's point from mentors. I don't know if I would have ever gotten there on my own. I think I had those inclinations, but I learned from mostly indigenous women, mostly in the Bay Area when I was in my early 20s or late teens about how to make meaning about who we are and where we come from and what does that mean for like what is the intervention we're using our life toward. So I would say it matters 100%. Malkia just entered the room, Lynn, just so you're aware. Yes. Hi, Malkia. How are you? Great to see everybody. Thank you for coming. Um, Malkia Hillary just read a passage from uh, her chapter, and I know we had um, talked about you doing that as well. Okay. Um, and so I don't know if you wanted to jump right in. Sure. Uh, yeah. Sure. Hi, my name, my name is uh, Malkia David Cyril. I'm really excited to be in this book. I love it. Um, there's so many brilliant um, people in this book. Um, I, I think it's important for me to say initially, I was like, I don't identify, I, my, my pronouns are they, them. And, um, uh, you know, it was important for me to articulate the expansiveness of, I'm a gender expansive person. I consider myself a, a stud, a mask. So women who changed the world didn't exactly 100% describe me. But it does mostly. So I'm I'm here for it. <laughs> I'm here for it. But I just wanted to articulate that that reality. Um I couldn't, I was struggling to decide what segment to, to share. Um, there's so many different pieces. And my cat is going to be part of this conversation. So just we just gonna to have to deal with that. Um he does not take no for an answer. Okay. I'm starting on page 175. Move, man. I didn't know 
how to think about myself in terms of my relationship to America. I felt like an outsider on every level. I didn't identify with the immigrant experience. I didn't identify with the citizen experience. Even my understanding of chattel slavery was not one that was connected to the American South, but one that was connected to the West Indies. My aunt Carol, a historian, traced our family lineage from the first African in our line in America, an Ashanti woman. My mother taught us all of this, about how actually the vast majority of Africans were enslaved in the West Indies. And that when you think about the experience of chattel slavery in the Western hemisphere, it's actually primarily outside of the United States. But the way it's been framed is that it's all inside the United States. So I grew up feeling like an outsider here. I also grew up having a globalist understanding of the world because of that. I felt like an outsider, but I understood that I was from the Caribbean. At the same time, my mom had this understanding of herself as part of an immigrant community, even though she too was an outsider in some ways. Our home was filled with people from other countries. She always had people visiting from India, Black people from England. She had people visiting from Latin America, from Africa, all throughout the continent of Africa. Our home was filled with people whose relationship to the United States was one of direct colonialism and listening to their stories helped shape my understanding of who I am. I understood from a very young age that citizenship was a privilege, a privilege conferred, sometimes by force, not something you just get born into. I understood that for black people in the US, even if you had the citizenship paperwork that didn't make you a citizen. I had an understanding of citizenship. I had an awareness of citizenship. I also had an awareness of migration. I also had an awareness of migration because my mom traveled the world. We lived in Martinique and Trinidad and St. Lucia when my sister and I were young. My mother, Mama Janet, and her group of sister friends traveled the Black diaspora. And it taught me something about the vastness of the world, the vastness of Blackness. Growing up in that in-between space, growing up in such a unique household, it simultaneously made me feel like an outsider and also gave me a lot of clarity about power and identity from a very young age. By 1974, the Black Panther Party was under severe attack and had been for quite some time. Some might say it had dissolved by then, although my mom would not say that. My mother said, once a Panther, always a Panther. I think that experience of collective action, power and trauma isn't easily erased. So when I was born, many of her friends were engaged in court battles. Some had fled to other countries in exile, fleeing either trumped up charges or other circumstances. There was a great feeling I recall from a very young age, a, a feeling of fear, a great feeling of fear, a suspicion of the government, a heightened sense of security of being in a culture of security, but also this feeling of connection to movement as a, birth, as a birthright. I didn't know that my aunties and uncles weren't related to me. I didn't know that they were related to me through the party. I actually thought we were blood relatives for a very, very long time. Everybody was called auntie or uncle. Or everyone, everybody was called auntie or mama. Everybody was called uncle or baba, sister, brother, cousin. The elders, who were not really elders because I'm not an elder now and they were the age I am now, they were in their early 30s, early 40s. They were connected by something most people don't understand this passion for freedom and the willingness to act for it. 
I recall as a child going to meetings in Yuri Kochiyama's Harlem apartment, sitting on the floor under the table, stacks of papers all around. The apartment was dark, I remember that. I remember they were always, they were always meeting about something. I didn't know what they were meeting about. I didn't know what they were talking about. But the language about revolution, about police violence, about systemic racism, this is the language I grew up hearing. This wasn't something I was introduced to in college or anything like that. I grew up in the context of conversations about colonialism and post-colonialism, Fanon and Marx. My very first gift actually was the little red book by Mao Zedong. One of my uncles gave it to me when I was born. That is the context I grew up in. <clears throat> so that is a little excerpt of, uh, of this, the story. And, and I'll just say that um, the process of being interviewed is a very strange one, you know, of being, of someone listening to you talk and tell your story. I don't talk the way I write. I don't write the way I talk, right? So it's not my writing. It's my, my, it's my talking. Does that make sense? Like, um, this is, this is a, tra a, a, a very, um, accurate transcription, right? Of, of, of what I, what I said, but, but what's important about it is that when you, when you tell stories, other, not, not when you write them, but when you tell them, there is a personal, uh, there's something deeply intimate, you know, about, about speaking your story. I mean, in most of the world, in many parts of the world, the oral history, the, the, the stories that are told mouth to mouth are the stories that are the oldest. They're the ones that, that last the longest, you know? They're the ones that are from the deepest parts of, of our lives. And um, the things that I learned, I didn't learn them from books. I learned them from my mother's mouth. You know, I learned them from the oral histories of my aunties and my uncles. I learned them from speaking to my uncle Kamal, you know, from pri in, in prison. I didn't learn them from reading. I got context for those stories by reading, but, but I learned about myself and about my world from the, the oral histories. And, and, and I'll just close with this. You know, my mom always used to tell me, um, she would say, you know, think about it like this. Um, if we lived by a river, all of our stories would be about water because I want you to survive the river. I want you to understand how to eat from the river. I want you to understand where the water is so that you'll never be without water. So where the water is so that you'll never drown. I want you to learn everything you can about how to live by water. But we don't live by water. We live inside of systemic racism. We live inside of patriarchy. We live inside of capitalism. So I'm gonna tell you everything I can about that. And I want you to learn how to live. That's how I think about oral history and its power and the reason that I participated in this project. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You know, um, it was it was so interesting when I interviewed you, Malkia, because we didn't have a relationship before the interview. And so uh, before you joined Hillary, some of the women that I interviewed for the book, I knew them already. 
and some were good friends. And there were a couple that I didn't know at all, or that we had some women, we have mutual friends. And so even though there's, there's nine women interviewed, there's such a, like a, a range of experience <laughs> um, among all the women that were interviewed, as well as the, the experience of the interview itself. And when I interviewed you, and I had never met you, but I knew of your work, and I saw you thinking, I heard you thinking through things during the interview. Um, in, in some ideas, you were like the grief and governance, grief, grievance and governance. It was such a powerful moment because you were working through these ideas and I felt like I, I wasn't inside your head, <laughs> but it was, it was really profound. You know, it was profound listening to you, Hillary, talk about the, the passage that you shared where you were making connections between what you experienced in the eighties in Richmond and then what you learned about the police in Richmond. It, it was really amazing to to be in this kind of open space with both of you and the other seven women that were interviewed. And you're right, Valkia, it's really different than writing um, because there's a, there's a way we have to open up. There's a way we have to open up. And for me, I, I, I find oral history so powerful because we can create spaces to do that. Um, and so I, again, I'm really grateful. I have this, uh, I did this with Hillary. This is the quote from your interview that I kind of pulled out and have in the beginning of your chapter. I'm going to read that. This is Malkia. I also understood activism beyond Black activism, the intersections. I did not think that America was something that just happened. I thought of America as a place where a set of laws and rules were constructed to result in a racial hierarchy, and that required deconstruction, and that we were, as a family, consistently involved with the construction and deconstruction of the nation at the local and national level. And I guess, you know, maybe it's kind of a, a a blessing, a divine coincidence that Hillary and Malkia, both of you came into social justice work from very different paths, um, very different um, childhoods, very different um, political kind of understanding um, or not understanding, but teachings about the way things are and the way things have to be and the way things should be. And yet here you both are in this book. And one of the things that I really wanted anyone reading this to know is that we can all come to justice work from many different paths and many different places. And that what really matters um, are the choices that we're going to make and what we're going to do. Um, and we draw from these experiences, just like Malkia shared and you, Hillary, we draw from our past experiences, um, but we make decisions now about what we're going to do. Um, and so I see, um, I don't know if any of the other uh, women interviewed have joined us. I don't think so. But 
I think there's some questions and I don't want to talk too much about the book because I want everyone to buy it, but <laughs> but I want to look at questions. Um, so Luz uh, Marina Rodriguez asks uh, for you, Lynn, who were your mentors? Oh my goodness, Luz. Well, Luz is one of my mentors. I've been friends with Luz um for 40 years um i think we were in kindergarten i'm joking so i've known Luz uh since the early 80s from loisida um which is a liberated zone or some of it is a liberated zone in uh new york city and uh so i i dedicated the book to um my my some of the women in my life my grandmother raised me her name was violet my grandmother was 36 years old when i was born i come from a long line of teenage moms who uh working class women um my mom violet was very kind she was a kind person a decent person and um and so she taught me the importance of being kind. And I think, um, you know, when I, I did this event with Loretta Ross uh, last week, and Loretta talked about being kind, and she wasn't going to mess with people that weren't kind. She didn't have time for that. And <clears throat> so my mom, for sure. And um, my birth mother uh, was very nonconformist, um, and I didn't meet her until I was an adult. Um, but that also made a big impression on me because where I grew up, uh, women really, you had to know your place, you know, it was kind of like hammered into your head. Um, and, uh, Frances Golden, um, who is a founder of Met Council on Housing and Cooper Square, and she's a literary agent. She, um, was, for example, one of the people was the person that got Mumia, many of his books published. Um, and so Francis was the first person to door knock me when I was 22 and had a baby who's on this call, my baby, Rocio, my first baby. Um, and she was three days old and, and we didn't have heat or hot water. And Francis was like, you need to come to a meeting. And I had never been to a meeting and, you know, any kind of like social justice kind of meeting and then uh she kind of scared me you know she was really beautiful and kind of fabulous and but she was in my apartment and we were freezing and heating it with the, the oven and she put her arm around me like in a loving way but in a scary way was saying do you want to live like this <laughs> and then she finally said we have heat in the office so um so them and uh, my daughter asked me tonight, she, she and her wife took me to dinner and asked me what I was most proud of today. And I said, you. <laughs> so my daughter, my son, my grandson, uh, but Luz, you know, it's a community, right? So I had a community. It wasn't just individuals, but a community of people. Again, like I grew up in, I was born in Baltimore. I grew up in a rural area. And then to end up on in Loisida, 
with people saying, yeah, girl, come on, <laughs> you know, get busy. And, um, and so I had many mentors. I lived in Nicaragua during the Sandinista revolution. Um, I had many mentors there. Um, that really taught me the nonsense of, oh, people are too oppressed to, to make social change. We have to do it for them. I'm like, no, <laughs> you know, Haiti had a revolution, you know, I mean, come on, we, we have to give respect to people's capacity to struggle and resist and make revolution. So Elaine, um, Elaine, I don't know if you're on the call and I give a shout out to City Lights for um, believing in this idea for this book. Uh, so you, I'm grateful to you. Um, and she has a question if you'd like me to read I it. I'm happy it. To. Um, you want so, to read it out loud? Or? Yeah. Okay. Um, Lynn, would you talk about what Malkia referred to your own commitment to staying true to the voice of each of the women? Maybe let folks in a bit on the arduous craft part of putting together this book and on preserving a further oral history in general. You know, I just I really felt the weight of doing justice to uh, these women that took the time to be interviewed and to open up, to, to like join me. And they were, most of them were over Zoom. <laughs> so that also is, you know, you're having these intimate conversations. Um, I really would have wanted it to, for us to be next to each other in my house or their house and cook a meal, you know. Um, and so it's, you know, you listen differently when you transcribe, right? So you're listening deeply when people are speaking and then you transcribe, I transcribe them and you hear things, you hear things that you didn't hear at first. Um, and it was very, very important to me, as Malkia said, speaking is different than writing. So none of us speak in perfectly grammatical sentences. I mean, well, maybe some people do somewhere, but I have never met them. And so on the one hand, you want to respect the integrity of people's voice and what they said. And then on the other hand, I was working with uh, Greg Ruggiero and Greg was like, well, it has to, you know, have like, you know, this is not a sentence. And so there was a little bit of push back and forth, which was good. Um, but at the end of the day, um, Greg and Elizabeth at City Lights kind of, um, you know, I listened to them also. But really, if I, you know, I picked my battles. And so they, there was respect there. And it was very important to me to respect the the words. Even there was some back and forth about particular words. Is that the best words? And I was like, well, that's their word. So I'm not changing it. Um, and so that was, it, I learned a lot. I learned a lot doing it. Um, it I, arduous, maybe, you know, maybe there was some moments that it felt really arduous, but it, it just also felt really exciting. You know, I felt responsible to each of you, Malkia and Hillary and everyone else. And I, I felt like you were really beautiful and what you were saying was really brilliant and powerful. And I wanted everybody else to hear you, even though it's a book that are reading you, but I didn't want to like dilute it or, 
filter it. Um, and both of you took the time to read your transcript, and I was really grateful for that. I was, um, I just wanted it. I wanted to do it right, do do right by you. Um, and then oral history, you know, preserving and furthering oral history in general. You know, when people use storytelling and oral history interchangeably, and there's an intersection there, but you know, these are histories, these are movement histories. And so the movement history is revealed in the story, but there's, there's, I think um, oral history is a, a way that history has been conveyed and still is in many cultures and here as well, since the beginning of time, since when we could start speaking. And I, I don't wanna reduce these to, stories just have to me a less significant weight that word and what how we think of it so I really think of these as oral histories there are um you know Loretta I read a chapter I read a segment from her chapter about Yolanda Ward who was a woman who was assassinated um in Washington D.C that was a housing organizer, only 22 years old, that really revealed um, kind of this plan um, called spatial deconcentration, where after the uprisings of the 60s, the Pentagon, uh, the US government came up with a strategy to basically disperse people that were resisting and rising up in urban areas for the most part and published a paper called Spatial Deconcentration. You can Google it, and it's brilliant. And she, we brought her into the, um, Loretta brought her into the interview, um, and we, we chose that together, that passage to read. And it's important that people know about her. It's important that people know about, even if COINTELPRO is technically over, um, it just there's the same things are happening. The surveillance is still happening. Um, it's just not called that. And so it's really, really important. Oral history is a way to get at this information um, in a way where people that have experienced it and done this work can not just talk about like a timeline can tell you what happened when, but to interview people that participated in those events not just gives us additional information like data, it tells us what that work meant to the people that did that work, right? When Malkia talks about uh, founding media justice, right? It's not something that, you know, Malkia read in a book and so I need to do this. It was an expression of her life experience and not just their life experience, um, but that of their community. And so it's important for us to understand what the work means to the people that made it happen, because there are lessons there that we all need to still learn. Um, and so that's one of the things I think about oral history that's so important. Well, we're coming up on the top of the hour, and I was wondering if there are any last statements or things that you would like to bring up, and also um, Hillary as well, and Malkia, any parting thoughts? Um, just one thing, I think earlier in the hour, Lynn, you talked about, I mean, we're talking about the, 
the skill, the craft, the, the also human tendency of telling our stories and reflecting each other through them. And I don't know, I had the experience in doing this with you, Lynn, of realizing I never, it's rare to have such time to tell stories. And I think so many of the ways that we digest information these days is very quick and short and rarely do you get a follow-up question. So just the, the act, the skill of deciding that you want to know more about the people around you or people you respect or people that you want to feel closer to or with. And that's actually the skill of organizing is like asking good questions and listening and asking another question and like knowing more about somebody in their life and figuring out how it is that you can connect your struggles together. So I, I also want to pull out just like the humanness of this approach, but also the strategy of that it's a part of organizing. It's a part of social change. Um, I got in movement because I had mentors ask me questions in ways that I had never been asked before. And they helped me make meaning in a way where I've been able to dedicate my life to changing for a different world. So I just want to say that there's so much wisdom actually in the, in the process of the book and then also what comes through them. Yeah, I definitely co-sign that. And um, I'll just add that, you know, oral history um, is an intimate project. When you write, you can be more strategic. Um, you can make more uh, strategic choices about what you leave out. You know, when someone asks you a question, you answer it, you know, and um, I I answered the, the questions and I answered them vulnerably and I answered them honestly. And so I told a lot of my business. <laughs> I put my business in the street and, um, you know, uh, and, and the thing is I'm fine with that, you know, because I, I wish more of us would put our business in the street so that we could actually, um, you know, let people know that it's not perfect human beings that, that change the world. Actually, you know, it's very imperfect human beings. It's people who make bad decisions and people who make big mistakes. Um, and, and yet our, our humanity, that's part of, that's part of our humanity, you know, uh, and and it's part of I think the point of the book is to is to is to let people know that um, you don't have to be we're we're not on some pedestal somewhere else you know we are regular people who had a passion and who tried to live into that passion just like Harriet Tubman just like Martin Luther King just like Malcolm X they were young people they were regular people. History gives them a, a pedestal, but at the time, Dr. King was one of the most hated people on the on in the, in the country. So, the fact that, for example, I, I I let I said that some people love me and some people hate me, that's true. And the thing is that that I think it's important to say that out loud. You know, it, it's important to acknowledge that when you are a person who's out here trying to make the kind of change at the scale that we're talking about. You, you're definitely going to also be an asshole. Like, you know what I mean? And you have to be, you, you have to have the arrogance to think that you could do something like that, you know, to have the, the, the level of passion and confidence to think that you could face off with the Bank of America, or you could face, face off with the president of the United States. Um, and and, and to, that the only way you really show history 
with that level of perspective is by talking about it. And so I, I appreciate um, the book from that perspective and I'm, I'm just so glad to, to have been a part of it. Thank you. Well, we have come to the top of the hour. Uh, Lynn, any final statements, parting thoughts? I, I, and, you know, along those lines, I never thought, you know, I would write a book. <laughs> Who am I, right? You know, and so we take a leap of faith. We have to take leaps of faith to learn things, to do things we never did before. Um, it's on us. It's on all of us to make uh, the world better. It's on all of us, uh, whether it's where we live in the building where we live or the neighborhood where we live or our own families uh, or this country. It's on us. And, you know, we can do things that we don't know we can do. We just have to know they're important to try um, and find other people out there. Um, so I'm grateful for everybody's honesty and vulnerability and um, because all of us, right, have to figure out a way to change the world. So I went with that. Well, Lynn Lewis, uh, and I should say the same for you, Hillary and Malkia, you're superheroes to us here at City Lights. And we are so honored to be able to publish this wonderful, wonderful book and Really, thank you so much for being here tonight. Also want to thank everyone in the audience for joining us. As always, you help complete the circle. Uh, I want to remind everyone, we have posted links in the chat function of your Zoom dashboard with which you may purchase copies of Women Who Change the World. Better yet, if you are in the neighborhood, come on down, pay us a visit, browse our stacks. And tonight's event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation. Continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, through public events like this one, our publishing program, and educational outreach, all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and independent thinkers. So goodbye, everyone. Take care. We hope to see you all again soon. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.